the important part of the meditative process is the possibility of finally being able to give the mind a rest. When the mind is concentrated, it doesn't think. Now, it doesn't mean that it becomes blank. The complete misconception, which interestingly enough, television set was turned on last night where I was, and somebody said, oh, my mind goes blank. That's not meditation. What happens in meditation is that instead of thinking, one starts experiencing. And if we don't experience, we're not alive. Because we can't think up our lives. We can only experience them. We always try to think up, think about them and think it up and plan it and get it all thought out. But our actual experience of life is how we feel about it, the inner experience. So if we manage to become concentrated even for a little while, we are giving the mind the possibility to regenerate its energy. And only then is the mind able to have clarity. Everything else that we think about is always colored and discolored by our own personal wishes. Our own personal ideas, opinions, attitudes, likes and dislikes. Never can it be an absolute experience. Never can it be absolute truth. There is, in most people, an inner yearning for a fulfillment which is not to be found in the marketplace. But the marketplace becomes so overwhelming that people think they haven't got time. It's a common misconception because what is time? Our whole life is our time and we don't know how long we're going to be here. So that's it, that's the time we've got. Nobody is really totally contented with what can be had in the everyday marketplace consciousness. Most people are looking for something more. And naturally, especially in this country, the offers for something more are so multitudinous that one can spend one's life trying, trying them out. Again, one doesn't know which one it could be that's being offered, since one is looking for something one hasn't got. 
If one is looking for something one hasn't got, one doesn't know what it's like. There, one needs a fair bit of wisdom and introspection to make sure what it is that one is looking for. What we're basically looking for is happiness, which we should be looking for. But, unfortunately, the way people look at happiness, it comes through the senses through the seeing, through the hearing, tasting, touching, smelling and thinking. Thinking is also one of the senses. And because that is dependent upon outer conditions, that there's something nice to see, to hear, to taste, to touch, to smell, or that we know something nice we could think about, which is usually way in the future, something which is supposed to change, so we are dependent upon outer conditions. We are dependent upon fantasies, probably, if we want to think up something nice. And we still don't feel fulfilled. Because the fulfillment that brings the inner happiness resides within our own heart. It does not reside in our senses. And it does not reside in our thinking apparatus. We can think anything we want. It's not going to bring that inner fulfillment. The yearning that most people feel is for exactly that. They can't quite know because they haven't got it. It's happiness. It's peacefulness. It's an inner contentment. It's a lack of stress and striving, what most people want. Now, that is quite justified. We should look for that. We all have it within. All of that is available to us, but not outside of ourselves, only within ourselves. And the meditation, the meditative process, makes it possible to touch it, to get to know it, and then to live with it as one's inner base, as one's inner foundation. In the first place, because it's a purification process. In the second place, because it makes it possible for the mind to stop hoping and planning, wishing, disliking, creating, and getting in touch with what there really is within. By getting in touch with what there really is within each one of us, the mind regenerates all the expended energy through thinking. Now, we've all probably experienced already what it's like when one has been thinking all day long, either in an office or over a book or whatever it may be. It's tiring. We don't realize how tiring. It's equally tiring as physical work. Now, that expenditure of energy 
has to be regenerated somehow or other. Most people never get to that. They just expend the energy and let it roll. We take our mind for granted, and yet mind and heart are containing the greatest jewel there is for each person. And yet we take all this thinking and emoting and reacting for granted. That's the way it is. We're always hoping for the best and fearing the worst. And if we're hoping for the best, we should be fearing the worst because hope does not bring it about. We've got to train ourselves. In Pali, the Buddha's language, meditation is called bhavana, which means mind training. And that's what it is. We train our mind so that it does not run from one thing to the next, but learns to stand still and to go within. And as it goes within, it finds totally new facets of being which we were unaware of before and which contain exactly what we're looking for. Peace, contentment, happiness and joy without outer conditions. If our outer conditions are fine, that's good. But very few people can be totally satisfied with the outer conditions because of the fact that we know, subconsciously or consciously, that everything there is has to change. Constant change. So even though we may not admit that to ourselves, there is an inner fear, an inner fear of what we have, which is nice, might change to something which we don't want. And that inner fear prevents inner contentment, prevents that kind of foundation within which is imperturbable. When we have found it within, we know it depends only upon us to keep it. There's no outer condition involved. Which means that we become independent. Independence is freedom. And freedom means that we are then in control of our thoughts and our emotions. Most people think they are. Meditators know they're not. Everyone who's ever meditated knows that, well, one wants to sit here and become totally quiet and joyful and happy, the mind does not play along. It plays its own games. So from that we know immediately we're not in control. Because the mind is not trained, it does what it likes. And the emotions go along not being trained, they also do what they like. We become angry, upset, fearful, 
envious, jealous, all sorts of unpleasant emotions which cloud our thinking capacity. There is no only one remedy. There is no other. People have thought up hundreds of other remedies which appear to be easier. None of them can substitute for getting within oneself and getting in touch with that inner core which everyone has, which is totally peaceful, totally joyous, totally independent. There is no substitute. And it can only be done through the meditative process. Because as long as we think, it's all covered over with thoughts. We can't get at it. It's always there, but there's no way to touch it. Sometimes people have the idea that a peak moment in their lives has been due to an outer experience. In fact, the outer experience has only been the trigger. It is a total commitment to the moment which makes the peak experience possible. Sometimes we might see a wonderful sunset and become happy and totally imbued with this spectacle that we see. And so we say afterwards, sunsets make me very happy and peaceful. But that's not what it was at all. It was such a strong sense contact, which was the trigger, that the mind stopped telling stories about it for at least one second or two, and was just there experiencing that spectacle without thinking about it. This is exactly what we can repeat at any time we wish in meditation. Our emotions need as much purification as our thought processes because only when our emotions become purified do we have a chance to have clarity of thinking. It's like this. If we are in an ocean with huge waves and one of the waves goes over us, all we can see is the water of the wave. We can't look into depth. Only when the wave has subsided and the water has become still can we look to the bottom where we can see the sand or the coral, whatever is to be seen. It's the same as our emotions. As long as they override us 
overpower us are part of a thinking process. We can't look into depth. We only see the emotion. So we have ways and means besides the meditative process for purification. <coughs> the meditative process is an essential linchpin of the whole because without it, the mind will not have the strength <coughs> to work on the other purification processes. In daily life, we continue the substitution process that we do in meditation so that eventually it becomes habit. In meditation, We use the meditation subject, we'll be using the breath, and when the distracting thoughts arise, we substitute the thought with the breath. And also, we will label the thought. The first thing that we do is we understand that there is either future or past hoping, wishing, distraction boredom tiredness whatever it is the first label that comes to mind is the right one now if we learn that through meditation we'll be able to do that in daily life We'll be able to label our thought processes. And as we label the thought process, we will see whether they are wholesome, useful, whether they can bring happiness or the opposite. And having learned to substitute the thoughts with attention on the breath, we will then use that same ability to substitute the unwholesome thoughts with wholesome ones. It can very easily be said that anything that's negative is unwholesome. So we can use that as a criteria, but we can go further. Anything that makes us or others unhappy is unwholesome. That will probably already suffice to know which ones we need to substitute. This substitution process in the meditation and the labeling process in the meditation makes it possible to do that in daily life. The Buddha's instructions are quite clear on this matter. He says like this, not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen, to make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, to make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. In other words, just be able to differentiate between wholesome and unwholesome 
and recognize the danger in thinking the thoughts which are negative. Who is in danger? The one who is thinking them. They become a habit. They become ingrained. They're like ruts in a wet driveway. The more often we go over the same ruts, the deeper we go in. In the end, it becomes extremely difficult to change that habit. The quicker we do it, the better. Just because we believe that something is of such and such a nature doesn't make it true. This is the second thing that we learn very quickly through meditation. Not only that we're not in control of our thoughts, but also that the thoughts which we're thinking do not have any intrinsic value. They're just thoughts. Now, mind you, when we have to make a living, when we have to study something, sure, we have to think about it. But those are necessary survival skills. These are not our spiritual lives. These are not the fulfillment of the internal yearning that we have for peace and joy. So we see in our meditation very quickly that we don't have to believe every thought we're thinking. They're just thoughts which are rising and ceasing again, coming and going. And most of them in meditation don't make much sense. They're just sort of sprinklings of thoughts. And from that we can see very clearly that what we think in daily life doesn't have to be so. We can think otherwise. And we will see that the positivity, the wholesomeness, the, the kind of thoughts that bring happiness and a feeling of contentment are the ones that we like to stay with doesn't mean that we lose our discriminating facility or capacity. Not at all. We can discriminate between what's good and what's bad, but we don't have to hate that what's bad. We discriminate. We haven't been called upon to be judge and jury. All we've been called upon is to grow spiritually. That's the meaning of a human life. If we've ever wondered why we're here, and usually we stop wondering when we turn 20 or even earlier, unfortunately, because we get too busy, that's what we're here for. We're here to grow spiritually, to have that inner growth which <clears throat> we have with the body until we're about 20, 21 and which can go on in heart and mind for the rest of this life. If that's our direction, if that's our goal, then the external circumstances cannot touch us as much as they have. So we have our thinking processes which are being purified through meditation, through concentration, which we get to know through labeling and meditation, learning to substitute the distracting thought with 
the meditation subject, and which we then continue in daily life where we can label the unwholesome thought as unwholesome and substitute with wholesome. We also learn that our opinions and attitudes may not necessarily be right or the only ones and therefore we are much more flexible and our minds do not get stuck in certain ruts. And the flexibility of a mind means that it has a capacity to grow. To grow into a direction where it can take in universal truth. We have the same possibility for purification of the emotions. And I'll talk about that, I'll just mention it now, I'll talk about that later in a little more detail. But as far as emotions go, the Buddha talked about four of them, which are the only ones worth having. All others can be substituted with those. They're called loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. I'll explain them in more detail afterwards. And we'll stick now to the thought process which we will experience in the meditation. In order to have concentration, we need a method. Now what we're going to do is nothing but method. Only when we can discard the method do we come to proper meditation. But in order to be able to discard the method, whichever method it is, there are dozens of them, the Buddha taught 40 of them, we need to practice. So the first thing is learning method. And the second thing which is very important also to know, and which I can only briefly touch upon because we don't have much time together, is that while there are innumerable methods and any method that works is okay there are only two directions for meditation calm and insight and the word vipassana which we hear so much means nothing but insight it's a Pali word for the word insight nothing else and the word calm means samatha so calm and insight means Samatha and Vipassana. The word Samatha is sometimes used as the word Samadhi. Now these are the two directions, Samatha and Vipassana. And they have to be practiced both. One alone won't do. They have to be both used, they have to be totally understood. What we don't understand will never do properly. It's very simple to understand. It's not that we now are requested to have a course in difficult and obtruse matters. When we use the breath and we stay on the breath, we're working towards samatha, calm. 
When we label a thought, we're working towards the personal insight. Dozens of methods. Anyone that works is fine. When we recognize the impermanence of the breath, as every breath that comes in is finished, and a new one has to go out, and then that's finished, and a new one has to come in, that's working towards Vipassana. The end of Vipassana is enlightenment. The word Vipassana is sometimes also substituted with the word Panya, wisdom. They're interchangeable. They are not a method. Nobody can be taught insight. Everybody's got to gain it by themselves. All we can be taught are methods. And methods are absolutely essential because if we don't have them, we don't know what to do. So, if we stay on the breath, we will eventually experience that the breath becomes finer and finer. And maybe one day, or maybe immediately, who knows, we can't find it. It's so fine, we can't find it. That means that the mind has become so fine that the breath has followed suit. When the mind doesn't think, it becomes finer and finer, calmer and calmer. When that happens, we can't find the breath or it's so fine. We can discard that as our meditation subject and the first thing that arises is an enormously pleasant feeling, sensation. If that happens, that's a meditation subject. We don't have a method anymore then. We have started actually to meditate towards calm. Calm has eight steps. Insight is very often described as nine, sometimes as 12, sometimes 13, sometimes 16, depends how we divide it up. Let's say calm has eight, insight has nine, makes it simpler. I will not be able to tell you all eight or all nine in one afternoon. I can only tell you that they exist. Calm has to be practiced because, as I said before, if the mind is not quiet, if the emotions are all over the place, if the thoughts are all over the place, how can the mind get insight? It can't. It has to be totally concentrated, regenerate its energy through calm, and because of that be able to go into depth. Only calm is not the goal of Buddhist meditation. Calm is the means, insight is the goal. Naturally, we use both immediately because nobody becomes totally calm and nobody gets total insight right away, so we use both. Watching the breath brings calm. Knowing that it is totally impermanent, but not just knowing it intellectually, but experiencing it, and also the labeling brings insight. The labeling brings insight into our thought processes and habitual way of thinking, 
insight into the fact that we don't have to believe it and insight into the fact that we can substitute. That thinking is just an activity of the mind which is also very tiring and that we don't have any control otherwise we could stop at will. Anybody who ever gets unhappy has no control over the mind. Anybody who has control would never voluntarily become unhappy. It's a contradiction in terms. Meditation cures all of that, but only if one does it every day. If one does it once in a great while, or just when it so happens, it's as, all, as if one were to say to one's body, you know, once in a while I'll give you something to eat. We never do that, do we? So we have calm and insight as the two directions, samatha and vipassana. We have many methods. We're going to use the breath. Now with the breath, I'll explain to you five different ways of watching the breath. And then after I've done that, we'll actually do it. Anyone who has meditated for years regularly will have a method, use it. Otherwise, one needs a crutch. The breath alone, just to watch the breath alone, is not easy. One has to become attuned to the breath. The mind has to get used to it. We take our breath for granted. The only time that we are ever interested in it is if we should lose it. Otherwise, we are not even interested in the breath. And yet, it's our foundation for life. If we lose it for less than two minutes, we're dead. And yet, we take it for granted. We often have that unfortunate habit of taking the good things in life for granted. This means life. The first way of using a crutch is to count. One on the in-breath, one on the out-breath. No more than ten. Every time the mind wanders off, gets onto some sort of thought, start with one again. It's no use trying to figure out whether one has been at four or at five or at nine or wherever. Just back to one. <coughs> but that's for those people who like numbers. If you don't like numbers, you might like words. Use a word like peace. Peace on the in-breath, peace on the out-breath. If you're interested in the Buddha, Buddha, Buddha on the in-breath, Ho on the out-breath. If you like, if you know a better word, use it. Anything that works is fine. The word peace is quite uh, um, meaningful. Never forget the breath. Always together, the word and the breath. If you don't like that, maybe you have a visual mind. 
Imagine the breath as an ocean wave, silver, shining, brilliant, coming in and going out. As it comes in, it gets smaller. As it goes out, it gets bigger again. You can use any image. You can use a cloud if you have a mind that's visually inclined. If you like to attend to sensations, physical feelings, sensations, <coughs> become aware of the sensation that the breath creates first at the nostril, then in the nose, even in the throat, in the lung, wherever you become aware of it. If you're not a very experienced meditator, don't stay just at the nose, it's too difficult. Follow it, follow it in. You can feel the lungs expanding. Wherever you can feel something, become aware of it. As you breathe out, Again, the same process. The lungs might be contracting. If you breathe in and follow this sensation, you can follow it as far as you wish. But when you breathe out and follow the sensation, stay close to yourself. The meditation, the inner foundation that we want to find is within. The further we go out, the less we find it. That's why our thinking processes are contrary to our meditative process because they're all out there. And then you can use, if you don't like any of those, number, word, picture, sensation. You can use beginning, middle, end of breath, counting one, two, three. But you have to be a little experienced for that because most people don't even know that breath has beginning, middle, end. They're just breathing because without it we wouldn't be here. So beginning, middle, end, one, two, three on the in-breath, one, two, three on the out-breath. Pick one of those and stay with it. Now, when the thoughts come, you may not be able to label each one. Label as many as you can. Give them the first label that comes. What could be more interesting than getting to know one's own thinking processes? There are habitual patterns that we have that arise again and again. So they are also interesting to know. But another thing happens that when you label the, the thought, you're no longer the thinker, you're the observer. And as you become the observer, the thought immediately collapses and you can go back to the breath. And from that you can see that we don't have to be the thinker. We don't have to continue with anything that is not appropriate at the time. 
if we observe it, it falls apart. If you have thoughts, because you have meditated for some time, which are only in the back of the mind and do not constitute a real disturbance, you don't have to label them. Only when they take you away from the meditative process. There's one other thing that should be said, and that's the unpleasant feeling which arises from the sitting position. It is a very interesting learning situation because it is important to realize how we feel about our personal discomfort, whether we instinctively and immediately try to get away from it or whether we can take our mind off it and put it back on the meditation subject and can see that it isn't important at the time or whether we insist on being comfortable. To insist on being comfortable makes life difficult. There are many situations where that insistence cannot be complied with. So to watch oneself and see how this works and then if the mind says it's all very interesting but I can't sit like that then change your position slowly and carefully so not as to disturb the other person and not to disturb yourself. But first become aware of your own reaction to unpleasant sensations. Now before we start the meditation now, maybe there are some questions, anything that's not clear, or that I've omitted to say. Yes. Could you say a little more about the difference between wholesome and unwholesome? Why that is not the same as pleasant and unpleasant, or is it the same? Hmm. No, it's not the same. Uh, we're talking about thinking huh, with wholesome and unwholesome. It's not the same as pleasant and unpleasant, but it can certainly turn into that. But some people find it quite pleasant to think unwholesome thoughts. In fact, they revel in it. And uh, some might be go so far as to be so attached to them they don't even want to get rid of them. So wholesome and unwholesome denotes a state of mind which has either, on the one hand, love and compassion or equanimity in it, or joy with others, helpfulness, generosity, care, friendship, or on the other hand, dislike or um, greed, anger, envy, jealousy, worry, fear and all those other possibilities which we have. So the unwholesome kind of thinking produces that kind of reaction within whereas the wholesome thinking produces a kind of reaction which is joyful and at ease. 
the more we train ourselves in that one direction the easier the meditation is the easier the meditation becomes the easier it is to think wholesome thoughts the two go together purification has to be on both levels purification is the keyword for spiritual life does that answer the question okay yes the desire the desire goal then is to In meditation, we want to think as little as possible. If possible, nothing at all. We want to experience our inner being, which is possible if we stop thinking. In daily life, it's very important to think because we have to, you know, comply with the, our duties and responsibilities. And we are confronted, most people are confronted daily with um, other people so that there we want to train ourselves to think wholesome thoughts which then again helps the meditation now if we have already practiced long enough in meditation that we are able to stop thinking meditation we will find day, uh, times during the day where we also don't have to think because nothing, there's nothing there to be thinking about but that needs um, little training and meditation and then the mind can be at rest and just experience its inner being but first it's no thinking in meditation I mean as little as possible and then wholesome thinking in daily living okay helped through lesson in two seconds huh? <laughs> The uh, sweeping technique is uh, uh, concerned with the um, attention on the sensation which comes just through concentration. And the similarity with the breath and the sensation is there, but it's not the same technique, not the same method. It's just the method, difference in method, which methods are methods by any name, right? Yeah. Equanimity meditative absorptions which I started saying are eight and the very first one is when the f breath becomes so fine that the um, can no longer be used as a meditation subject and the attention goes to the inner sensation that's a way to equanimity the fourth meditative absorption is the absorption of equanimity but there's a but also it has to be supported by um, equanimity through insight. Equanimity in daily living arises through insight. But it needs that support system of the meditation because without that, it's just too difficult. Yeah? <laughs> okay, yes? Yeah? Uh, I was wondering about the labeling system. Mm-hmm. 
No, uh, you could, you can use that, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be as effective because you won't you have to try and think at the time. No, the labeling will usually be future, past, unnecessary, uh, later, nonsense, um, uh, hoping, planning, boredom, um, wishing, disliking. Those are usually labelings that we use in the meditation. You can say unwholesome if you have an unwholesome thought. It's not so likely. One usually doesn't get all that angry in meditation. One just gets bored when one thinks about the future and the past. Primarily, most people are planning. You can write novels about the plans they make in the meditation. But if something very unwholesome comes up, yes, then the label unwholesomeness would be useful, but it's not so common. Yeah. That's right, yes. Very general. Very general. One sees one's patterns then. Anything else? Yes. Um. My emphasis has always been on just not attaching to either uh, wholesome or unwholesome thoughts or, or any, any thoughts. So do you, do you think the purification will move faster if you actually substitute? Or is just not attaching to any thought at all? Are you talking about daily living or in the meditation? No, either. I, I guess I've never really separated. Well, you have to because you can't sit with your legs crossed and your eyes closed doing the daily living, but you can do that in meditation. Um, you have to I substitute. Mean, note of what I, I mean, like taking note of thoughts in daily life, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a neutral thought. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you then start thinking what a dreadful system this is and how one has to pay rent and make money and, and the government takes the taxes out, and that's <laughs> negative. You know, I mean, it doesn't help a thing because they keep on taking the taxes out anyway. You know, so it might as well not think like that. Um, it is uh, necessary to substitute because not attaching to a thought, it's an impossibility. Once you've thought it, you've thought it. I don't quite know how you would go about not attaching to it. Identifying. You don't identify yourself with your thoughts? Very unusual. How do you do that? You think it's not me thinking, or what do you think? Just watching the impermanence. You watch the impermanence of the thought, watch it coming and going. And you don't act upon it. Well, it would be dreadful not to act upon the wholesome ones. See, if you have a thought, I'd like to give this person a present because I'm really uh, grateful to that person. But you don't attach to it. You don't identify with it. That's the end of it. You don't do it. So something is amiss there, huh? doesn't quite work that way. So uh, is that, does that make sense? Not sure. Hmm? I'm not. Okay, we'll think about it later. Huh? 
Anyway, at this point in time, label the thoughts in meditation and use the technique of substituting the unwholesome with wholesome in daily living. See, now, it's an impossibility. We can say that. I'm not attaching to this. You know, it's a nice, nice thought. It's a good thought. But to actually do it, oh, it's a totally different ballgame. Takes an awful lot. So um, the thoughts we have um, are our triggers. So then they need to have the actual imp- implementation. And the implementation, that's the difficulty. Yes? I find that, that substituting is also easier said than done. Sure. If, if I'm really feeling angry, to say I'm feeling love, <laughs> is, it, it doesn't work either. No, it doesn't. First of all, the first thing that, that works is, first of all, through the meditative process, it becomes much easier to identify the thought immediately before it has taken hold, before it's so strong that it's already burning inside. So then it's easy to substitute. When it's not, when we haven't uh, watched out carefully enough, you can't very well, it's very difficult to substitute anger with love. But what one can substitute it with, and that's, I will talk about this later, we can substitute it with understanding. And from that it will work. <coughs> it's a, it's a, an understanding of the fact that if somebody is making us angry, obviously that person is also not happy. And from that we can work from there. But just to turn upside down, now that's an impossibility. And of course, all the things that we can do first have to be known. First you have to know. Then you have to remember them. And then you have to actually do them. It takes time and effort. And the effort is, a, is something which is, has to be steady. Yes? Yes? When you're observing sensations, it, is that, that's not thinking of them? Or is that no, it's experiencing. It's experiencing. Mm-hmm. Okay. But when you start talking to yourself about it and say, oh, that's a nice one, I like to keep it, or I don't like this one, I wish it go away, then it's thinking. That's reacting to it. But just observing is, is experiencing. What? Which are you referring to? The more that you would meditate, the less mm-hmm. you would take for granted. You were talking about how it takes so much. Yes, yes, yes. You, you, because you get to know yourself better. Mm-hmm. And you realize also because of the effort that one makes in order to purify <clears throat> thought and emotion, uh, one has a far greater connection to all the things that are for which we can be grateful and uh, so it is an introspection which leads that way the meditation just the calm meditation doesn't quite do it yet 
There has to be introspection with it. So we have to use both calm and insight. But it would certainly, well, there's no other way of doing it. Anything else? All right, we'll... How long have you tried? Well, well, just this afternoon. Oh, just this afternoon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's exactly the way it is. It's, um, this is what I was referring to when I said that the, begi- the minute one sits down and tries to meditate, one realizes one has absolutely no control over one's mind. And that should be enough incentive to keep on meditating in order to get some control. So um, the natural way of the human mind is distracted. Distracted and looking for something to bring about some pleasant feelings, which one thinks come through thinking, but doesn't. It's a totally different thing when we don't think. But it's natural. That's just exactly the way it is. So it needs practice, again and again and again. Just like everything that one wants to do well, one has to practice. And here, we, if we do this well, we have made um, an inner life happen for ourselves, which cannot be done any other way. So, practice. <laughs> but that's natural, yes. Were you able to label any of them? Yeah. But then another one came and another one came. Yeah, well, that's the way it is. And that should already, you see, one gets two immediate benefits from that other than the ones I've already mentioned. One benefit is that the intention of meditating, even if it isn't happening, makes good karma. The intention I declare is the karma. It's the, it's the Buddha said. So it's, a, it's the intention counts. And the other thing is, it counteracts our third hindrance, sloth and torpor. Because most people don't want to be bothered. That's why they don't meditate. And there's, I mean, there are the excuses for that are multitudinous. It no, doesn't matter which one we use, a time or, or later or whatever it is, one doesn't want to be bothered. So that's sloth and torpor. And sloth is um, the physical that arises out of that and torpor is in the mind. And the Buddha d- compared that to being in prison. So we immediately, when one sits down and wants to meditate, one is counteracting that, that particular one. So one has immediate benefits. Whether you have umpteen thoughts or not, that doesn't uh, detract from that. Okay, anything else? I've given you a formula for the thoughts, for the purification of thought. 
other than a concentration in meditation. Not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. Not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen. To make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. To make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen. These are four. They're called the four supreme efforts. They're supreme because they bring the most supreme benefits. Anytime one does it even once, one knows. The Buddha did not expect people to believe what he said. But he expected intelligent people to try it out. That's all. If it works, fine. If it doesn't, no harm done. This is one thing one should try out over and over. Because the first time when one does it and it has worked, it has, one has been able to let the unwholesome thought go and put the wholesome one there as a substitution. One realizes that it brings enormous self-confidence and it creates a feeling of being reliable, that one can rely on oneself. One knows what to do. Now the same applies to our emotions. Here we are talking about first about the four supreme efforts called the padanas in Pali. And here we're talking now about emotions. And again, we have, I've mentioned them already, four emotions which are useful, which are that which makes it possible for us to be, first of all, self-confident in our contacts and in our um, relationships. We feel confident that we know how to handle anything that comes up. So fear is eliminated. And inner peacefulness arises if we can use these four instead of all the other emotions which are rampaging around in our hearts and making life difficult for ourselves. These four are called the four Brahma-viharas, which means the divine abodes. It means nothing else other than if we have those four in our hearts, then we have created an inner paradise for ourselves. Now that means, of course, perfection. In the beginning of our practice, no perfection. There's nothing to blame, nobody to blame, if there's no perfection. That's just the way it is. But what we can accept is that we can change it. So the first one is in Pali Metta, M-E-T-T-A. Second one, Karuna Mudita Upeka. Now, Metta is translated 
into English as loving kindness. But is this a word which we don't use in our everyday language and therefore it isn't meaningful enough. It doesn't have enough oomph behind it. So I like to use the word love rather than this long uh, loving kindness with a hyphen in the middle. Now obviously the Buddha's instructions and guidelines for love have a different connotation than what we have in mind when we think love, when we feel love, when we say love. Our usual ideas and usual manifestation of that is a one-to-one relationship. If we have a family, it might be wanted with two or with three or four, a maximum. And that's love, as far as most people are concerned. It's not what the Buddha talked about. The Buddha talked about love as a quality of the heart, not as a direction towards a person. Now, the far enemy of love is, of course, hate. It's quite easy to see. The near enemy is affection. Affection which breeds attachment. Because it limits us, it puts a price tag on our love. And in our materialistic society, that is, of course, the first thing that happens. The price tag we put on is that that person whom we love has to be present, has to be there, has to remain there, and has to love us back. And if that isn't the case, then it is a cause for great unhappiness and often a feeling of tragedy. Not only that, but even while everything is still going well, this kind of love is tinged with fear, consciously or subconsciously. And fear means hate. Now that doesn't mean that we hate that particular person. What we hate is the idea that we might lose that person. So purity of love is totally unknown because purity of love has absolutely no other connotation than the quality of the heart and it has nothing to do with a particular person. It has nothing to do with a particular ideal. It has no counterfoil. It is strictly that which we have educated the heart to do. Now, our mind is there for intelligent, rational, logical thinking. And if we educate it, as we probably all have, because this is part of our society, we can think intelligently, rationally, and logically. All our learning institutions are geared towards that end. Every way to make money is geared towards that end. But there isn't a single learning institution where we can learn how to cultivate 
and educate the quality of the heart. So we have to do that of ourselves at home. It's possible. Anybody can do it. But there has to be, first of all, the knowledge, the information. Then there has to be the remembrance. And then there has to be the action. It doesn't come by itself. It follows on with the substitution process, which I've already mentioned, and it follows on with the wholesome thinking. It's all part and parcel of the same process. Once when we, as long as we have personal and limited ideas about loving somebody, we have to remain in that limit where we can actually have contact with that person. So we are dependent. We have a dependency syndrome. And in that dependency syndrome, what happens also is that we try to be lovable <laughs> and agree to what we mightn't agree to ever if that wasn't the case. If we weren't lovable, then we think, because that one person doesn't love us, then we think that everything is lost. In reality, there's nothing other that makes us lovable than to love. The whole thing, with the way we're looking at it, is upside down. We're looking for somebody <coughs> to love us. And then, of course, decent people as we are, we'll love them back. But, <laughs> but the love that somebody else has for us is their love. They can feel it, and they are making themselves dependent. Our feeling of love, if we really want to know what it's like, has to be independent, independent of whatever there is. Now, in order to make that a reality, the first thing that we have to realize it's a difficulty we create for ourselves when we don't love. Now we hear all these wonderful words and slogans, we should love one another and uh, we should all be one. I mean, these are nothing but words and slogans until one feels it. And one person who feels it, one single person who can feel that, independent love which is not conditioned, doesn't have any conditions to base itself on, but it's just the quality of the heart, can be of great great help to many people around. Looking for love is not the answer. Giving love is the answer. Without figuring out whether somebody is lovable.
To tell you the truth, none of us are completely lovable. <laughs> if we're going to wait for somebody who's completely lovable, we're going to wait in vain. <laughs> so we might as well forget about that and just become aware of the fact that we have that ability within us. It's there. It's possible. Now, it's greatly helped if we have some understanding of ourselves because we can only emit outside of ourselves that which we have found within. We can't be or do whatever we'd like to be or do without having first come in contact with it within ourselves. So the first thing that we can learn about ourselves is that we, we contain both. We contain within us the lovable and not so lovable. But we also find it difficult to be a good human being. It's not easy. It's not easy to be a human being, so it's more, even more difficult to be a good one. Now, obviously, when we find that within, we can assume from that without any difficulty that everybody's like that. And once we can see that, then it is much easier to learn compassion. Compassion with the difficulties of others. Not judgment, not being judge and jury, but compassion with the difficulties. Some people have more than others. Some people are able to overcome their difficulties. Some are not. Some have them temporarily. Some difficulties go away. Everybody's got them. The Buddha calls this dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, the most important word to remember because it contains everything. Can't translate that into one word. Contains all the unsatisfactoriness, all the unfulfilled hopes and wishes, all the unfulfilled dreams and fantasies, all the unrealities that we live in because we haven't seen the absolute truth, all that which we'd like to be and never will be instead of being what we are. All that's contained in Dukkha. And once we have seen that within ourselves, there's no question, everybody's got it. So then, when we come into contact with someone who's making life difficult for us, for some reason or other, it's unpleasant, it's uh, nasty to us, doesn't talk nicely, the first thought that can come into the mind is that this particular person must have an awful lot of dukkha that particular time. Mm -hmm. A happy person cannot be nasty. It's not possible. One can't be two things at the same time. So this person is unhappy. So when we see that quite clearly, our reaction can be trained to be one of compassion. And when we train ourselves to be compassionate, then the loving quality of the heart has been aroused and it's much easier to cultivate it. Another thing which will help us 
is gratitude. The Buddha said it's a rarity. He said there are three rarities. One is the arising of a Buddha. One is a person who will do a kindness. And the third one is a person who is going to be grateful for it. So there's no reason why we can't be one of these rarities, at least one of the two. We can find so many things to be grateful for. If we could look at our life, at our daily life, and just look at all the things that are happening every day, which we take for granted, having enough food, having shelter, having clothing, having somebody to talk to, being able to be outside and enjoy the fresh air, maybe seeing a beautiful sunset or sunrise. All these things people take very much for granted. Walking on the grass. And yet, these are things to be grateful for. But more than that, every person that we have contact with, we have something to be grateful for. Every single person that we come into contact with is doing something for us. Whether it's a postman that delivers some mail, or whether when we switch on the electricity, it's the people that are working in the substation, or when we pick up the phone, there's somewhere there that's going to give us a number because they press the right button, tell us what number to dial. When we buy the bread, somebody had to grow the wheat. Somebody had to clean it up, then to bring it so that it could be baked into something. The baker, the farmer, everybody had something to do with it so that we can eat. There's impossible to be alone. We can sit in a cave somewhere and see nobody. And yet, the clothing we wear, somebody's made it. The glasses we have on because we can't see very well, somebody's made them. We can't live without the help of everybody around us. If we imbue our heart with gratitude, we've taken a step towards love. It seems very difficult to love the postman he might be bringing nothing but bills. <laughs> and yet, he's part of our life. He's got to be there. Otherwise, things wouldn't run the way we would like to live. Wherever we go, there's something to be grateful for. And when that is aroused in the heart, love comes easier. Love is the only emotion that we can rely upon in our interconnections with others which will bring only good and beneficial results. But that doesn't mean the kind of love that we're used to, the one that hangs on and keeps, the one that wants it's nothing but the warmth of the heart which can multiply itself the more it is used. 
This is a law of nature which people don't want to believe. But once you try it, you'll see it's true. The more you give, the more <coughs> you've got. And that holds true for everything. With love, it's very easy to see. The more love you give, the more you've got. People are very often afraid to show love to others because they're afraid they're going to be rejected. Well, so what? That's the other person's problem, isn't it? Loving somebody can only be right if it is without that trying to keep and trying to have. If it's only that warm quality. It's another part also of friendship. Friendship belongs with it too. If friendship has love in it, then it is a kind of unselfish giving. The whole of the Buddhist teaching leads in one direction only, and all of the steps on the way are part of the training. The direction it leads to is to lose the illusion which we have about our personal individuality, which is the difficulty that we deal with because we want this person to be not only loved and appreciated, we want it to be safe and secure. We want to protect it, we want to look after it, we want it to have a sort of um, a power base where it can be something. We want to be somebody. We're not content with just being. Well, loving others, being grateful to others, reduces this base of wanting to be somebody somewhat and just gets in touch with our potential, with the potential of spreading that from our inner being which everybody wants love and peace we don't have to say anything if somebody walks into our room who's very angry we can tell just by the way he walks the way he sits down the way he grabs the paper he doesn't have to say a word the way he scowls everything is noticeable he's angry and the whole room becomes angry. Somebody walks in who's full of love. We can tell. We don't have to even know exactly. There's a feeling of warmth, of togetherness, of acceptance, of friendship, of care. There's a lack of selfishness in the person who loves. And that's what it's all about. Because that is then the atmosphere that we can live in. We may have nice houses. And we may have all the material things that we can possibly get. But they don't make our lives. It's the inner atmosphere that is then projected outward. That's important for our lives. And we are, each one of us, can be the maker 
the creator of that atmosphere within and without. So we can have that kind of understanding that it's entirely up to us, which is one of the beauties of the teaching of the Buddha. The way I usually um, use the formula is don't blame the trigger. It's got nothing to do with what is triggering you. That's only a trigger outside. I compare it to a little jack-in-the-box that children like to play with. It's a little doll sitting on a spring inside a cardboard box which has a lid on. And the child can touch the lid just lightly and the little jack-in-the-box jumps out. Now, if somebody comes along and pulls that doll out of the box, the child can come with a hammer. Nothing will jump out. It's not what's happening out there that creates our anger, anger, our jealousy, our envy, our fear, our worries, our dislikes, our greed. It's what's in here. Once it's gone, it can't jump out. That's the work. That's the path. In the beginning, naturally, it's sitting in there. But if we get the idea, don't blame the trigger, don't blame that which is touching. Watch what's coming out. See it, first of all, with the way we think. See it, secondly, how we react in our emotions and then learn, it, learn to substitute. It has nothing to do with what's going on around us. Triggers will never disappear. They're always there. But this in here, that can disappear if we do something about it. If we want to have a kind of life which is harmonious, peaceful and loving, we have to create it. But if we remain only within the limits of our house or the limits of the people that are well known to us and only practice that, it's not enough. Because we can always be thrown then by situations and people who do not belong to that inner circle. So we're not safe. We're not safe from our own reactions. We can use the family or the partnership as a seedbed. We learn what it feels like to have care and concern and love and compassion for another person. And then understand that from that seedbed the beautiful flowers can grow. We could look at our heart as if it was a garden in which everything grows, beautiful flowers and also weeds. And unfortunately, the weeds always grow in every garden without even being watered. They just grow. 
So what we have to do and what we can do is cut them down so that they don't take out all the nourishment out of the soil, that they don't throw shadow over the flowers so that they don't get the sun, so that the rain can touch them, so that there isn't that much, so much undergrowth that we can't even see the flowers anymore. The flowers in our heart is love and compassion. The weeds are the anger and the dislike, the rejections, the um, wanting, all the things that make our lives difficult. Meditation cuts it down automatically to the extent that we are concentrated. Exactly to that extent. As much as we're concentrated, that much the weeds are cut down. It's not enough. In daily living, every one of us has innumerable opportunities to practice love and compassion. Especially when we, for instance, come up against a difficulty, difficult person, gratitude. It's a learning experience. This person is showing us what we have to learn. We accept him or her as our teacher. It's a wonderful opportunity. And if we look at it that way, we can deal with it from an objective standpoint. As long as it's always ours and we're always trying to protect me, we'll always be subjective and we'll always be difficult. The goal, as I said, is losing this me illusion. On the way there, we need to cut it down a bit, reduce it in size, make it more manageable. The bigger the me, the more difficulties we have. I always compare that with a very, very fat person who wants to go through the door. And of course, being terribly fat, they um, hit against the posts on the sides and hurt themselves. The same with a fat eagle. The fatter it is, the easier it gets hurt. So the more we reduce it, the less of it is left to get hurt. Obviously, everybody has some of it. But loving is giving. Gratitude is giving. Compassion is giving. All these are geared towards losing some of our selfishness and creating a situation around us where we are more one with the people that we're with. When our meditation becomes more concentrated, we will have experiences where it is quite clear that there is a universal togetherness. That we are all separate people is an optical illusion. That's all it is. In reality, it's totally different. There are manifestations in this universe and they come as people and they come as trees and they come as birds, as everything that is possible. And we, the more we feel our unity with that, the less threatened we are 
the less we need to secure ourselves. Because if it's all one manifestation, what's there to be afraid of? Fear is a human condition, one which is against loving. When we're very much afraid for ourselves, it's very difficult to love. So the less fear, the more love. Fear is the one thing which creates the most disasters in human relationships. 